The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee. The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter 14b. Nature 14469. That, according to the astronomer J.R. Hind, Benjamin Scott, city chamberlain of London, and Mr. Ray had in 1847 seen a body similar to Vulcan cross the sun. Similar observation by Hind and Lowe, March 12, 1849. Launay Scientifique, 1876-9. Nature, 14505. Body of apparent size of Mercury, seen January 29, 1860, by F. A. R. Russell and four other observers crossing the sun. De Vico's observation of July 12, 1837. Observatory, 2-424. L'année scientifique, 1865-16. That another amateur astronomer, M. Cumbrai, of Constantinople, had written to Le Verrier that upon the 8th, 8th of March, 1865, he had seen a black point, sharply outlined, traverse the disk of the sun. It detached itself from a group of sunspots near the limb of the sun and took 48 minutes to reach the other limb. Figuring upon the diagram sent by M. Cumbrai, a central passage would have taken a, a little more than an hour. This observation was disregarded by Le Verrier because his formula required about four times that velocity. The point here is that these other observations are as authentic as those that Le Verrier included, that then, upon data as good as the data of Vulcan, there must be other Vulcans. The heroic and defiant disregard, then, of trying to formulate one, omitting the others, which, by orthodox doctrine, must have influenced it greatly, if all were in the relatively narrow space between Mercury and the Sun. Observation upon another such body, of April 4, 1876, by M. Weber of Berlin. As to this observation, Le Verrier was informed by Wolf in August 1876, L'année scientifique, 1876-7, it made no difference, so far as can be shown, to this notable positivist. Two other observations noted by Hind and Denning, London Times, November 3, 1871, and March 26, 1873. Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, 2100. Standacher, February 1762, Lichtenberg, November 19, 1762, Hoffman, May 1764, Dango, January 18, 1798, Stark, February 12, 1820, an observation by Schmidt, 
October 11, 1847, is said to be doubtful, but upon page 192, it is said that this doubt had arisen because of a mistaken translation, and two other observations by Schmidt are given, October 14, 1849, and February 18, 1850. Also, an observation by Loft, January 6, 1818. Observation by Steinheibel at Vienna, April 27, 1820. Monthly Notices, 1862. Hasse had collected reports of 20 observations, like Les Garbeaux's. The list was published in 1872 by Wolf. Also, there are other instances like Gruthensen's. American Journal of Science, 228-446. Report by Pastorf that he had seen twice in 1836 and once in 1837 two round spots of unequal size moving across the sun, changing position relatively to each other and taking a different course if not orbit. Each time that, in 1834, he had seen similar bodies pass six times across the disk of the sun, looking very much like Mercury in his transits. March 22, 1876. But to point out Leverrier's poverty-stricken average, or discovering planets upon a 50% basis, would be to point out the low percentage of realness in the quasi-myth stuff of which the whole system is composed. We do not accuse the textbooks of omitting this fiasco, but we do note that theirs is the conventional adaptation here of all beguilers who are in difficulties. The Diverting of Attention It wouldn't be possible in a real existence, with real mentality, to deal with but I suppose it's good enough for the quasi-intellects that stupefy themselves with textbooks. The trick here is to gloss over Le Verrier's mistake and blame Les Garbeaux. He was only an amateur. Had delusions. The reader's attention is led against Les Garbeaux by a report from M. Lias, director of the Brazilian Coast Survey, who at the time of Les Garbeaux's supposed observation had been watching the sun in Brazil, and instead of seeing even ordinary sunspots, had noted that the region of the supposed transit was of uniform intensity. But the meaninglessness of all utterances and quasi-existence. Uniform intensity turns our way as much as against us. Or some day some brain will conceive a way of beating Newton's third law, if every reaction or resistance is or can be interpretable as stimulus instead of resistance. If this could be done in mechanics, there's a way open here for someone to own the world. Specifically in this matter, uniform intensity means that Les Garbeaux saw no ordinary sunspot, just as much as it means that no spot at all was seen upon the sun. Continuing the interpretation of a resistance as an assistance, which 
can always be done with mental forces, making us wonder what applications could be made with steam and electric forces. We point out that invisibility in Brazil means parallax quite as truly as it means absence, and inasmuch as Vulcan was supposed to be distant from the sun, we interpret denial as corroboration. Method, of course, of every scientist, politician, theologian, high school debater. So the textbooks, with no especial cleverness, because no especial cleverness is needed, lead the reader into contempt for the amateur of Orgueil and forgetfulness of Le Verrier, and some other subject is taken up but our own acceptance that these data are as good as ever they were that if someone of eminence should predict an earthquake and if there should be no earthquake at the predicted time that would discredit the prophet but data of past earthquakes would remain as good as ever they had been it is easy enough to smile at the illusion of a single amateur the mass formation. Frisha, Stark, Decupus, Sidebottom, L'Escarbot, Lumis, Gruthensen, De Vico, Scott, Ray, Russell, Hind, Lowe, Cumbrai, Weber, Standacher, Lichtenberg, Dango, Hoffman, Schmidt, Loft, Steinheibel, Pastorf. These are only the observations conventionally listed relatively to an intramercurial planet. They are formidable enough to prevent our being diverted, as if it were all the dream of a lonely amateur. But they are a mere advance guard. From now on, other data of large celestial bodies, some dark and some reflecting light, will pass and pass and keep on passing so that some of us will remember a thing or two after the processions over possibly taking up only one of the listed observations or our impression that the discrediting of Le Verrier has nothing to do with the acceptability of these data in the London Times January 10th 1860 is Benjamin Scott's account of his observation that in the summer of 1847 he had seen a body that had seemed to be the size of Venus crossing the Sun he says that hardly believing the evidence of his sense of sight he had looked for someone whose hopes or ambitions would not make him so subject to illusion he had told his little son aged five years to look through the telescope the child had exclaimed that he had seen a little balloon crossing the sun. Scott says that he had not had sufficient self-reliance to make public announcement of his remarkable observation at the time, but that in the evening of the same day he had told Dr. Dick, F.R.A.S., who had cited other instances in the Times, January 12, 1860, is published a letter from Richard Abbott, F.R.A.S., that he remembered Mr. Scott's letter to him 
upon this observation at the time of the occurrence. I suppose that at the beginning of this chapter, one had the notion that by hard scratching through musty old records, we might rake up vague, more than doubtful data, distortable into what's called evidence of unrecognized worlds or constructions of planetary size. But the high authenticity and the support and the modernity of these of the accursed that we are now considering, and our acceptance that ours is a quasi-existence in which, above all other things, hopes, ambitions, emotions, motivations, stands, attempt to positivize. That we are here considering an attempt to systematize. That is sheer fanaticism in its disregard of the unsystematizable. That it represented the highest good in the 19th century. That is monomania, but heroic monomania that was quasi-divine in the 19th century. But that this isn't the 19th century. As a doubly sponsored Brahmin in the regard of Baptists, the objects of July 29, 1878 stand out and proclaim themselves so that nothing but disregard of the intensity of monomania can account for their reception by the system. Or the total eclipse of July 29, 1878, and the reports by Professor Watson from Rawlins, Wyoming, and by Professor Swift from Denver, Colorado, that they had seen two shining objects at a considerable distance from the sun. It's quite in accord with our general expression, not that there is an intramercurial planet, but that there are different bodies, many vast things, near this earth, sometimes near the sun, sometimes orbitless worlds, which, because of scarcely any data of collisions, we think of as under navigable control or dirigible superconstructions. Professor Watson and Professor Swift published their observations. Then the disregard that we cannot think of in terms of ordinary sane exclusions. The textbook systematists begin by telling us that the trouble with these observations is that they disagree widely. There's considerable respectfulness, especially for Professor Swift. But we are told that by coincidence, these two astronomers, hundreds of miles apart, were eluded. Their observations were so different. Professor Swift, Nature, September 19, 1878, that his own observation was in close approximation to that given by Professor Watson. In the observatory, 2.161, Swift says that his observations and Watson's were confirmatory of each other. The faithful try again. That Watson and Swift mistook stars for other bodies. In the observatory, 2193, Professor Watson says that he had previously committed to memory all stars near the sun, down to the seventh magnitude, and he's damned anyway. How such exclusions work out is shown by Lockyer, Nature, August 20, 1878. He says 
there is little doubt that an intra-mercurial intra planet has been discovered by Professor Watson. That was before excommunication was pronounced. He says, if it will fit one of Leverrier's orbits. It didn't fit. In Nature 21301, Professor Swift says, I have never made a more valid observation, nor one more free from doubt. He's damned anyway. We shall have some data that will not live up to most rigorous requirements. But, if anyone would like to read how carefully and minutely these two sets of observations were made, see Professor Swift's detailed description in the American Journal of Science, 116.313, and the technicalities of Professor Watson's observations in Monthly Notices, 38.525. Our own acceptance upon dirigible worlds, which is assuredly enough more nearly real than attempted, concepts of large planets relatively near this earth moving in orbits but visible only occasionally which more nearly approximates to reasonableness than does wholesale slaughter of swift and watson and frisch and stark and de Coupy. but our own acceptance is so painful to so many minds that in another of the charitable moments that we have now and then for the sake of contrast we offer relief the things seen high in the sky by Swift and Watson. Well, only two months before, the horse and the barn. We go on with more observations by astronomers, recognizing that it is the very thing that has given them life, sustained them, held them together, that has crushed all but the quasi-gleam of independent life out of them. Were they not systematized, they could not be at all, except sporadically and without sustenance. They are systematized. They must not vary from the conditions of the system. They must not break away for themselves. The two great commandments, Thou shalt not break continuity. Thou shalt try. We go on with these disregarded data, some of which, many of which, are of the highest degree of acceptability. It is the system that pulls back its variations, as this earth is pulling back the Matterhorn. It is the system that nourishes and rewards, and also freezes out life with the chill of disregard. We do note that, before excommunication is pronounced, orthodox journals do liberally enough record unassimilable observations. All things merge away into everything else. That is continuity. So the system merges away and evades us when we try to focus against it. We have complained a great deal. At least we are not so dull as to have the delusion that we know just exactly what it is that we are complaining about. We speak seemingly definitely enough of the system but we're building upon observations by members of that very system. Or, what we are doing, gathering up the loose heresies of the orthodox. Of course, the system fringes and ravels away, having no real outline. A swift will antagonize the system, and a lockier, 
will call him back. But then a Lockyer will vary with a meteoric hypothesis, and a Swift will, in turn, represent the system. This state is to us typical of all intermediatist phenomena, or that not conceivably is anything, really anything, if its parts are likely to be their own opposites at any time. We speak of astronomers, as if there were real astronomers, but who have lost their identity in a system, as if it were a real system. But behind that system is plainly a rapport, or loss of identity, in the spirit of an era. Bodies that have looked like dark bodies, and lights that have been sunlight reflected from interplanetary objects, masses, constructions, lights that have been seen upon or near the moon. In Philosophical Transactions 82.27 is Herschel's report upon many luminous points which he saw upon or near the moon during an eclipse. Why they should be luminous, whereas the moon itself was dark, would get us into a lot of trouble, except that later we shall, or we shan't accept, that many times have luminous objects been seen close to the earth at night. But numerousness is a new factor, or new disturbance, to our explorations. A new aspect of interplanetary inhabitancy or occupancy. Worlds in hordes, or beings, winged beings perhaps, wouldn't astonish me if we should end up by discovering angels, or beings in machines, argosies of celestial voyagers. In 1783 and 1787, Herschel reported more lights on or near the moon, which he supposed were volcanic. The word of a Herschel has had no more weight in divergences from the orthodox than has had the word of a Lescarbot. These observations are of the disregarded. Bright spots seen on the moon, November 1821, Proceedings London Royal Society, 2167. For four other instances, see Loomis, Treatise on Astronomy, page 174. A moving light is reported in Philosophical Transactions, 84, 429. To the writer, it looked like a star passing over the moon which, on the next moment's consideration, I knew to be impossible. It was a fixed, steady light upon the dark part of the moon. I suppose fixed applies to luster. In the report of the British Association, 1847-18, there is an observation by Rankin upon luminous points seen on the shaded part of the moon during an eclipse. They seemed to this observer like reflections of stars. That's not very reasonable, however. We have in the annual register, 1821-687, a light not referable to a star, because it moved with the moon, was seen three nights in succession, reported by Captain Cater, see Quarterly Journal, Royal Institute, 12133. Philosophical Transactions 
237. Report from the Cape Town Observatory, a whitish spot on the dark part of the moon's limb. Three smaller lights were seen. The call of positiveness in its aspects of singleness or homogeneity, or oneness or completeness. In data now coming, I feel it myself. Eleverier studies more than 20 observations. The inclination is irresistible to think that they all relate to one phenomenon. It is an expression of cosmic inclination. Most of the observations are so irreconcilable with any acceptance other than of orbitless, dirigible worlds, that he shuts his eyes to more than two-thirds of them. He picks out six that can give him the illusion of completeness, or of all relating to one planet. Or let it be that we have data of many dark bodies. Still do we incline almost irresistibly to think of one of them as the dark body in chief? Dark bodies floating or navigating in interplanetary space and I conceive of one that's the prince of dark bodies. Melanicus. Vast dark thing with the wings of a super bat or jet black super construction, most likely one of the spores of the evil one. The Extraordinary Year, 1883. London Times, December 17, 1883. Extract from a letter by Hicks Pasha that in Egypt, September 24, 1883, he had seen through glasses an immense black spot upon the lower part of the sun. Sunspot, maybe? One night an astronomer was looking up at the sky when something obscured a star for three and a half seconds. A meteor had been seen nearby, but its train had been only momentarily visible. Dr. Wolf was the astronomer. Nature, 86 528. The next datum is one of the most sensational we have, except that there is very little to it. A dark object that was seen by Professor Heiss for 11 degrees of arc, moving slowly across the Milky Way. Gregg's Catalog, Report, British Association, 1867, 426. One of our quasi-reasons for accepting that orbitless worlds are dirigible is the almost complete absence of data of collisions. Of course, though in defiance of gravitation, they may, without direction, like human direction, adjust to one another in the way of vortex rings of smoke, a very human-like way, that is. But in Knowledge, February 1894, are two photographs of Brooks' comet that are shown as evidence of its seeming collision with a dark object, October 1893. Our own wording is that it struck against something. Professor Barnard's is that it had entered some dense medium which shattered it. 
For all I know, it had knocked against merely a field of ice. Melanicus. That upon the wings of a super bat he broods over this earth and over other worlds, perhaps deriving something from them, hovers on wings or wing-like appendages or planes that are hundreds of miles from tip to tip, a super evil thing that is exploiting us. By evil, I mean that which makes us useful. He obscures a star. He shoves a comet. I think he's a vast, black, brooding vampire. Science, July 31st, 1896. That, according to a newspaper account, Mr. W.R. Brooks, director of the Smith Observatory, had seen a dark, round object pass rather slowly across the moon in a horizontal direction. In Mr. Brooks' opinion, it was a dark meteor. In Science, September 14, 1896, a correspondent writes that, in his opinion, it may have been a bird. We shall have no trouble with the meteor and bird mergers if we have observations of long duration and estimates of size up to hundreds of miles. As to the body that was seen by Brooks, there is a note from the Dutch astronomer Muller in the Scientific American, 75-251, that upon April 4, 1892, he had seen a similar phenomenon. In Science Gossip, NS3-135, are more details of the Brooks object, apparent diameter about one-thirtieth of the moon's. Moon's disk crossed in three or four seconds. The writer in Science Gossip says that on June 27, 1896, at one o'clock in the morning, he was looking at the moon with a two-inch achromatic power 44 when a long black object sailed past from west to east, the transit occupying three or four seconds. He believed this object to be a bird. There was, however, no fluttering motion observable in it. In the Astronomische Nachrichten, number 3477, Dr. Brendel of Griswold, Pomerania, writes that Postmaster Ziegler and other observers had seen a body about six feet in diameter crossing the sun's disk. The duration here indicates something far from the earth and also far from the sun. The thing was seen a quarter of an hour before it reached the sun. Time in crossing the sun was about an hour. After leaving the sun, it was visible an hour. I think he's a vast black vampire that sometimes broods over this earth and other bodies. Communication from Dr. F. B. Harris, Popular Astronomy, 2398, that upon the evening of January 27, 1896, 
1912, Dr. Harris saw, upon the moon, an intensely black object. He estimated it to be 250 miles long and 50 miles wide. The object resembled a crow poised as near as anything. Clouds then cut off observation. Dr. Harris writes, I cannot but think that a very interesting and curious phenomenon happened. End of chapter 14. Recording by Patrick McAfee, Chicago, gis.depaul.edu slash pmcafee.